Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Barbara's away this week. We miss her, but we can't wait till she's back. Today, we'll be discussing whether or not the affidavit underlying the search on Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence will be unsealed. We'll also talk about voting machine shenanigans and the ongoing legal problems for Rudy Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham. And we'll talk about Alan Weisselberg pleading guilty in the tax fraud scheme that could portend big trouble for the Trump organization. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But first, I want to ask you guys something. So I just got back from vacation, a beautiful vacation in Newfoundland, Canada. And and I'm going to say this ahead of time. I am aware that this is a first world problem. I am not complaining. I am very lucky and privileged and blessed that I was able to take this lovely vacation with my husband. But it was perfect until on the way back, we had a connecting flight through Toronto and that connecting flight was canceled. And I have to say, my husband and I are pretty intelligent, well-educated people. <laughs> we felt more or less like we were on our own. Like the airport told us the flight was canceled and we were there, you know, in in Canada. It's a foreign country. We'd already gone through customs and stuff. And we were pretty much on our own to the point that the, we even had to ask to be let out of the airport because we'd already gone through customs. So we were in a secure area of the airport. We had to get somebody to actually let us out. No one gave us information. We really had to use our reporting skills to find it on our own to make sure that we were okay. We had to schedule our own hotel. Like, it, you know, we were told at best from the airline, well, you know, book a hotel and send us the receipt and maybe we'll reimburse it. Like, we just felt really uh, let down in that. And it was really hard not to become really frustrated in that. I just want to let ask you guys, like, what do you do when you're traveling and you're, you know, sometimes you're over a barrel when you're in that situation. Um, even if you do have the luxury to travel, if you, f- if there's a complication, you don't always feel like you have the information from the airline or the travel agency to get you out of it. How do you guys keep your cool? Cause it was hard. So, you know, I fly on Delta a lot, and I have found that Delta is really pretty good about helping you with changed flights. Um, But I've had my fair share of canceled flights this summer, and I just remind myself to not get too stressed out. But I'll tell you my best ever um, travel problem story. My husband and I were flying home from Israel after three weeks in Israel and Jordan with some new friends from Birmingham. It was an interfaith group from Birmingham. We hadn't known everybody on the trip, and we were flying out with four or five other couples, and our flight was at like five in the morning or something disgusting, and the travel service had told us that we needed to get there at two in the morning. Turned out that the airport wasn't open. Um, And there was, you know, our plan had been to go through and to sit down and at least be a little bit comfortable. Well, there was nothing. There was literally an area with like three places where you could get food had they been open and some tables with uncomfortable straight back chairs. But we were good sports and we had new friends. So we sat down and played cards together for a couple of hours. And then all the guys um, just start falling asleep, right? They're dozing off. And I hear the best story I've ever heard. One of the women was a little bit older than me, um, and she had grown up in the same neighborhood with Donald Trump. This is 2011, I think, so he's not running. He's not really a blip on anybody's radar screen. 
But she starts telling this story about how she grew up in his neighborhood and the kids every day after school would play street ball. They'd play stickball together. And one day the kid who was organizing the game was out sick and Donald Trump is organizing the game. And she's there like she is every day to play. And he tells her, you can't play. And she says, what do you mean I can't play? I play every day. And he says, you can't play. You're a girl. And she (gasps) sort of gets in his face and says, I play every day. And he hits her. He knocks her down. And so the best part of the story, and, and this is like one tough woman who's had a crazy professional career and is absolutely lovely. And she says, you know, she spoke to him sternly, and then her parents called his parents. And they just brushed it off. They're like, "Mm, what do you want us to do? Kids will tussle out in the street. And it's so funny. I've carried that story around with me ever since. And it has sort of always informed my view of Donald Trump. And I have often reflected, but for a really horrible travel delay that was really uncomfortable and miserable, I would have never heard that great story. Man. That one came full circle, didn't wow, it? Wow, that's a good one. So wow. it, it, it reminds me of a very delayed flight out of LaGuardia where I really got to know Katie Fang very well because we were both sitting in LaGuardia. Uh, and so that was a good thing. But listening to Kim made me sad because we are about to go on our first vacation since COVID. I've done some travel for business and, and with girlfriends but not with my husband. And this morning, I learned that my flight in Africa had been canceled. And um, I have spent the entire morning trying to resolve that. I think I have, but of course, it's costing me a lot more money than it would have. And so I'm not so happy. And it's making me really nervous listening to, you know, you're getting stuck in Toronto. Um, So Hopefully, guys, my bad luck is over. It's solved. It just cost me some money. I'm going to get where I'm going and have a great trip. But I do want to add one quick thing from our chit-chat last week, because many uh, of my followers on Twitter wrote to me saying, well, we're so surprised at the story you told about what you took from the Department of Justice. We thought for sure you were going to say the Watergate documents. And at first when they said it, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then I realized that I was willing to go to jail when we were anticipating being fired. We took copies. We did not take any originals, but we took copies of all the key documents, including grand jury testimony, to protect the investigation. If we were fired and if he was trying to kill the investigation, we wanted to be able to proceed in some way, even if it meant violating the law. Luckily, we ended up being rehired right away. We weren't fired. We got to go ahead with the case. But that is something I should have mentioned last week as what I took from the Department of Justice. You guys, a federal judge has hinted that he could unseal the affidavit supporting the FBI search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. I want to start with you, Joyce. First, explain to all of us what an affidavit is. 
and why the DOJ does not want this affidavit to be unsealed, do you think the judge will side with the DOJ and keep it secret, or might we see what's inside? So, you know, it's um, always amazing to me, and Barb and I have had this conversation a number of times, that for 25 years at DOJ, she worked a few uh, less years than I did, fewer years, but this was the work that we did every day. And I promise you, nobody ever walked up to me in the grocery store and said, Joyce, tell me how the grand jury works or how does a search warrant work? And now it's an issue that people are really interested and engaged in. And if there's a silver lining of the Trump years, it's that engagement with how our criminal justice system works. Search warrants consist of a number of different pieces of paper. There's an application, there's the search warrant itself, but the heart of the search warrant is the affidavit. That's the part that's submitted by the agent who's the case agent under oath, and it sets forth the evidence that creates probable cause uh, for the search. In other words, in this case, the affidavit is the agent saying under oath, under penalty of perjury, here's all the evidence that we have that suggests that a crime was committed and we'll find evidence of that crime or fruits of that crime if we search Mar-a-Lago. So it's an important document. The magistrate judge has now ruled that he will consider unsealing it, but he's given DOJ a week or 10 days to go back and look the affidavit over and submit DOJ's proposed redactions to him. DOJ already on record in the motion that they filed saying that they believe so little of what's in the affidavit could be unsealed without compromising uh, a lot of different interests that it has that it won't really make much sense to the public. And I think that either the magistrate judge or the district judge who DOJ has a right to go to to take an immediate appeal if they don't like the mag judge's ruling, I think in that process we're going to see that very little, if any of it, gets released uh, there are some problems. You can't really give the folks you're investigating a roadmap to the investigation. Much of this material will be have been obtained via the grand jury and required by law to be kept secret. Some of it will be classified and will have to be protected. About the only thing that I think the judge could end up releasing is some of the back and forth between Trump's lawyers and the government's lawyers in the run-up to this uh, search warrant trying to get Trump to give the documents back. And, and, you know, it's interesting, right? If that's released, that's not necessarily a good thing for the former president. Wow. And, you know, it's important to point out that this isn't just a straight Trump versus DOJ situation when it comes to the battle over unsealing the affidavit. Uh, other groups have filed motions, including news organizations who are seeking to have this affidavit uh, disclosed, at least, you know, a, a redacted version, but with information that can you know, give uh, be able to give public the public the, an idea of what was behind this decision making. And of course, Donald Trump himself has called for the affidavit to be made public as he has denounced the search in every way that he can. But interesting enough, Jill, I thought that it was fascinating that his lawyers didn't even file a motion <laughs> in this case. I mean, he's using whatever social media he has to do this, but his attorneys did not ask the judge to to unseal it. Why do you think that is? Because he doesn't really want it unsealed is why. That's, <laughs> this is all a game to him. It is a charade. He's trying to take the narrative of, I have nothing to hide. 
but I'm really not going to ask for it in the court to be released. His lawyer was in the courtroom, but she did not say a word. No documents were filed. It's clear to me that the, and particularly what Joyce just said, could be revealed even in a redacted version is how much effort the FBI made to obtain these documents without a search warrant. They tried much less intrusive methods. They tried talking to him. They tried visiting him. They tried subpoenaing him. And none of them resulted in getting back documents that they had reason to believe were there. And that reason was proved to be correct. It's not just that they had probable cause. The probable cause is established by the fact that they walked out with top secret documents. They walked out with 11 sets of classified documents, some at the very highest level of top secret, sensitive compartmented information. That's the top of the line in terms of top secret. So we know that the probable cause was legitimate. He doesn't want that revealed. And of course, the prosecutor doesn't want it revealed because we've seen threats against witnesses in the past. We've seen someone already targeting an FBI office based on the reaction to the search that has, which of course Donald Trump calls a raid. And so people are reacting and saying ill of the FBI and the Department of Justice. So, the, but the bottom line is, Kim. He doesn't want it. He knows that the stuff that's going to be in there were it revealed would be really damaging to him. And it's very unusual for an affidavit to be released at this particular time. It's not unusual. Of course, it's, it would automatically happen if there's an indictment. Then the defendant gets a copy of the affidavit and all the other information. Because at that point, you don't have to protect people. You know who the witnesses are. You know who the informers are, and that's okay. But at this stage, it could really seriously jeopardize both the national security because this involves top secret information, but also just an investigation of crimes, even if it wasn't classified information. You would know who the people are who are cooperating, and that could stop future people from cooperating because they'd be afraid of their names being revealed. Yeah, that's a really important point to think about the implications, not just it's not just release or don't release, but the timing is so important. And Joyce, the search is having other implications too, including a sharp rise in really awful, violent rhetoric and attacks on the FBI and inexplicably to anybody who has common sense, the IRS. So I know you know folks in the FBI, probably the IRS too. I know folks who are IRS agents. How do these attacks affect these agencies? You know, these agents are used to this sort of thing, but I think in all honesty, it has a really serious impact on morale. Prosecutors, too. I've had conversations um, with friends this week talking about how it really distresses them having this communication out there, having this uncertainty, even a level of fear um, about these kinds of issues. It's a funny point you make about the IRS, Kim. You know, the problem is for many people, the only contact that they have directly with the federal government is their postal worker and the IRS folks that they mm. will on occasion see. And so you find that there are attacks in both of those places. And, and really, if you're a, a federal employee, to some um, extent, you're not happy about it, but you appreciate that that's a risk. 
almost as troubling as those threats of violence is the real impact that this stuff has on public confidence in the agencies. And that, I think, is deeply troubling to folks that work there. They do a good job for the American people every day. You know, they go in and they put their heads down and they work and they've worked through criticism from this former president that he lobbed against them when they were in office. Permitting him to leave the public with the impression that they're, you know, lazy or corrupt or whatever his, you know, current crying jag is, it it really is, I think, very, very disappointing to them. And the problem is Trump is peddling misinformation to people who can be vulnerable to it and who really will buy whatever he serves up. I think that's disappointing to, to public employees. When you see it translate into violence, it's not hard to appreciate how it impacts agents. There was talk last week about possible dirty bombs. Apparently, there was some chit-chat on, on some of the um, websites that these folks use. That's really alarming to people in these jobs. And a lot of the real toll is on their families who are uncertain that their loved ones will come home safely from work, especially after this nail gun attack on an FBI office in Ohio. You know, this is the kind of thing that you would expect to see a party that calls itself the party of law enforcement. You'd expect to see its leadership stand up and condemn this. And I saw sort of one, you know, okay comment from Mike Pence, but I haven't seen the Republican Party stand up unified and say this is unacceptable and they should be doing that. Our, our men and women in law enforcement deserve that. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some of this stuff later, but that's so, that point is so important. I mean, and Mike Pence, like you said, it was this lukewarm kind of thing. Like it's okay to criticize the FBI. Don't, don't go for the rank and file agents, but it's okay to criticize the FBI. And it's like, wait, what? Like, what are you, what are you talking but about? We're the party of law enforcement. Right. You know? We are the law like- enforcement party. It's insane. And the IRS is based on the fact that the Trump administration gutted the IRS <laughs> and it, it really hamstrung its enforcement for reasons we're going to talk more about later, probably, maybe, allegedly. Um, but <laughs> so now they're actually being staffed so they can get through this backlog of work that they have. And some nuts on the Internet are suddenly saying, oh, look at all this money that the Biden administration is putting into the IRS. It's so that they can come take our guns. Like what? Like, it doesn't even make sense, but people believe it, and they're spewing this online, and it's absolutely insane. Anyway, sorry, I can go on this forever, but Jill, this animosity toward the FBI uh, is throwing a monkey wrench into uh, lawmakers' efforts to reauthorize a program known as Section 702. I think we've talked about Section 702 on this podcast before, but just as a refresher, what what is Section 702? And why is it so controversial? Because it's not just the GOP that has problems with this program. Well, let me say that the complaints have nothing to do with anything that we're talking about. Yeah. Because there is absolutely no indication and no reason to in any way suspect that 702 was involved in getting the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. So, it's basically an excuse being used by the Republicans to fight against a surveillance technique that the FBI feels is necessary. It's also ignoring the fact that the head of the FBI was appointed by who? 
by Donald Donald Trump. Trump. Gee, so you have a Republican at the head of the FBI. You have no connection between 702, which is a foreign intelligence collection method. And the complaint is that it could possibly sweep up conversations with Americans because of how broad it can be, broadly it can be used. But there are protections against that, and there's no use of that information. So to me, this is just a big complaint about nothing, and it's just more of the Republicans complaining. And they're now trying to defund the FBI. I mean, think about what that means. The complaints about the IRS you've already mentioned, but now there's complaints about the FBI. Who's going to rescue kidnapping victims? And who's going to do all of the things that are within the jurisdiction of the FBI that protect America? So it's it's a wrong-headed thing to be complaining about 702. There is one, there's one thing that it doesn't quite fit here, but has anybody else been bothered by the fact that news reporters are all saying, well, Judge Reinhardt was a prosecutor and therefore he's going to be sympathetic to the prosecution argument or therefore he will really understand it, which really bothers me a lot. Well, and it flies in the face of what happened, right? I mean, he, yeah. That's my circuit, the 11th Circuit. And the law in this circuit very clearly favors law enforcement here. In in fact, I think that his, if he does issue this order to do a partial unsealing, it won't hold up. I don't think it'll make it past the district judge because the 11th Circuit gives prosecutors the latitude to investigate their cases without letting putative defendants interfere with it, right? right? He's not acting in a pro-prosecution way. I fear that he's trying to let some of the air out of the balloon of public controversy. That's what I think um, it is. I, too. I think it is too, and I think that's yeah. a good and healthy thing. And I think looking at it seriously from a neutral point of view as to whether there are parts that could be revealed, that's fine. But I have my feeling is that there's so much that will have to be blacked out that it will not be meaningful. It'll be like trying to read even the Mueller report. There was parts of it you read and got, gee, I don't know what this is all about. Oh, it'll be more heavily redacted than that. that, Let me push back and just say, as a prosecutor, I don't want to see folks in every case that I'm bringing come at me trying to get a search warrant affidavit unsealed while I'm still investigating. This case is a little bit different, and DOJ did a good job of parsing that law. It's different because there is a public interest here that doesn't exist in every case. I just don't see the 11th Circuit upsetting the apple cart of all the law that protects the integrity of prosecutions because Donald Trump yet again wants to be above the law. I think most of us, uh, most commentators were saying this will never be granted. It shouldn't be. It would be highly unusual for it to be. It would fly in the face of the protection of witnesses and potential witnesses and the investigation and the evidence. But I I don't think it's horrible that he said, I will review it after you redact it. And it's, you know, people are forgetting that he didn't say, you'll redact and I'll release. He said, I'll review it. And then you'll be able to appeal it if I order it uh, re- you know, revealed, you can go on right away. So it's not, we aren't going to get this information this right away. This is a magistrate was, judge, right? I right, mean, they, right. It, he didn't have to say that. They have an automatic right, right to get right. A, a different opinion right. from an Article Three judge. Um, 
But I was raising so, a different issue, which was commentators saying that the magistrate judge was biased because he was a former prosecutor. They didn't say those words, yeah, but I but found that offensive. It's, yeah, it's it was nonsense, nonsense and offensive. Uh, and I just wonder if I was the only one. That was my only question. I mean, I think sometimes we do look at judges' backgrounds. We sometimes look at the political party that they come from, you know, and uh, draw conclusions. But I think your point is a really good one, Jill. I think most judges, and by all accounts, Judge Reinhardt, when they take the bench, they set all that stuff aside. They, you know, and sometimes exactly. the judges that are the hardest on prosecutors right. are the judges who've been prosecutors because they know what the right thing to do Precisely. is. So I think you're dead on the money. Yeah. There were so many stories this week that not enough attention was paid to some that I think are really important. Rudy testifying in Georgia, Senator Lindsey Graham fighting the order to testify, and to me, the most interesting of all was the undercovered story of Donald Trump's lawyers getting access to voting machines. Kim, talk about what the Trump lawyers did with voting machines, what state officials allowed to happen, and what the consequences are in terms of this election, future elections, our democracy. I think this is a really big story, and we're going to actually put the link to a very detailed accounting of this in our show notes from the Washington Post. Yes, and that's important because I have to say, honestly, Jill, I read this story multiple times. It's a lengthy story, and I still don't fully understand everything that was happening. But the one thing that is clear to me is that it is bonkers. It is absolutely bonkers. So what we have Good learned, legal terminology. Have, yes, yes. There's a technical term. Term of art, yes. Yes, bonkers. So what we learned is that uh, as part of a civil suit, a long-running lawsuit in federal court about the security of Georgia's voting systems, what the plaintiff's attorneys discovered in discovery are emails that revealed that lawyers in support of Donald Trump, we're talking about Sidney Powell and the Kraken crew, um, they tried to get a forensic firm to get data from voting machines. And they were apparently successful in getting copies of data from voting machines from one rural district and then tried to repeat that process to, I, I couldn't fully understand exactly how successful they were, but in places, in other places like Detroit, like uh, the Atlanta area uh, and other states to have data from voting systems um, including Dominion. Now, keep in mind, remember, Dominion um, has been pretty successful in suing on its own right uh, in civil court to try to get people to stop, news organizations to stop, saying that they were somehow implemented in some sort of fraud regime without any evidence at all because it didn't happen. Well, in the course of trying to sue over security of Georgia's voting systems, plaintiffs found out that Trump lawyers were actually getting data from voting machines. It's absolutely insane. So one thing that the Washington Post uh, story that we will put in the show notes notes is that these plaintiff's attorneys turned it over to state and federal officials. They turned this information over to the FBI. There are already some uh, criminal investigations being instituted at 
the state level. I don't think it's clear from the story whether there are also uh, is also an FBI ongoing FBI investigation. But I would hope that federal officials are looking very seriously at this, too, because we cannot <laughs> stress enough how absolutely illegal and felonious that would be if they can prove that that had happened, that it's really it's really mind boggling. Okay, it is mind boggling. That's the only way to describe this. And it is dangerous, very, very dangerous. But let's move to another part of the Georgia investigation, which is Rudy Giuliani, who has tried to avoid testifying on grounds of his health, meant he couldn't fly. He was told to take a bus or drive. You got to watch. And I have to say to our listeners, if you have not watched Judge McBurney, it's a video of him saying, like, whether by bus, by Uber. Like, it's so great. You need to go find Judge McBurney telling Rudy to get himself there, even if he needs to hitchhike. I'm sorry, Jill, go ahead. So, Kim, before I... Before I go to the serious part of the question. I actually had a defendant, a mob hitman, who flew from Boston to California to do the job, but had been discovered and was followed by the FBI. And to make a long story short, he ended up committing perjury in front of the grand jury. So we couldn't get him for the murder, but we got him for perjury. And we're going to trial. And he really didn't want to go to trial. He ran in front of a car and got hit. Injured enough... <laughs> Injured enough that he went to the hospital and said, oh, I'm in the hospital. I can't come to trial. And the oh judge said to me, you call and you ask the doctor whether he can get here or not. And the doctor said, well, he does have to keep his leg elevated. And the judge said, fine, I'll give him an extra chair and a pillow to keep his foot up. And oh so he gosh. went to trial with this mob hitman with his foot on a chair on a pillow. Okay, sorry. That's great. That is a great story. In the end, of course, it turned out that after that, the uh, DA notified Rudy that he was actually a target of the investigation, oops. which meant, yeah, oops, right. So now he had a different reason for not showing up, which is that he would take the Fifth Amendment. But he did show up, and it's reported that he was in the grand jury for six hours, which is a lot of time to be saying, I take the Fifth. So what do we know about what happened in that grand jury? And did he use the Fifth, or did he actually testify? And why was he there to begin with? So, very interesting situation. I would point out that we don't know for certain how Rudy made it to Georgia. We don't know if he <laughs> flew or if he ended up taking a bus. Personally, I've been waiting for that reporting. I have not heard that. I did see that he was staying at the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta downtown, which is where we would all stay the night before oral argument in the 11th Circuit because you could walk to the courthouse. Very interested that Rudy was so close to the federal courthouse full of the U.S. Attorney's Office and federal prosecutors in Atlanta. We've mm -hmm. not seen any peep from those people that suggests that they're involved in this case, but you never know. Um, so you're right, Jill. Six hours is a long time for someone to assert the Fifth Amendment in front of a grand jury. But once you know that you're a target, it's really a foolish lawyer that, that lets their client say very much. Of course, we don't know how good Rudy is at listening to his lawyer's advice, but I would expect that the testimony went something like this, you know, what's your name? I take the Fifth Amendment. Um, you really can't assert the Fifth Amendment to those opening questions like your name and your address and what you do for a living. But I suspect that once it got much past that, 
Rudy spent the better part of six hours asserting his Fifth Amendment right to avoid incriminating himself. Um, there are cases, though, where a target goes in and offers an explanation. Sometimes, especially with political figures, you'll see these investigations where I recall an old case in Virginia where before they indicted a governor, he was invited to come have a chat with the grand jury, and he convinced the grand jury that he should not be indicted. So there are those rare cases. Whether or not that's at work here, I think that seems doubtful to me. The interesting question, too, that you posed, Jill, is why did they want him and what might he do? Sometimes you'll let somebody know that they're a target— as an opener on negotiating a cooperation agreement and a plea bargain. And Rudy, you know, when I think it's logical to infer that he had a lot of direct conversations with Trump, he could testify a lot as regards Trump's mindset, what he wanted to do, what his goals were. And so if you're Fonnie Willis, Rudy Giuliani, are you willing to give him a pass to be able to get the former president, the most culpable person in this entire setup? I think you might be especially because he's been suspended from the practice of law already. So there has been consequences for his bad conduct. So let's now talk about Senator Graham. Uh, Kim? (laughs) Okay, so sort of the same kind of questions. Why was he being subpoenaed to the grand jury in Fulton County? And why is he trying to get out of it? And what does he know? Yeah, so Lindsey Graham is a subject of interest, and uh, the subpoena is due to a conversation that he had with Brad Raffensperger, where he, uh, according to Raffensperger, asked about the ability to uh, toss out some votes, whether some votes could be nullified. Raffensperger said he took that to mean that he was being asked uh, to to see whether he could discount some of the votes on behalf of Donald Trump. So the speech and debate clause protects members of Congress against uh, any sort of civil liability or criminal liability based on what they say as part of their work as lawmakers. In no way, (laughs) if you are engaged in an effort to try to overturn the results of an election, is that a part of your duty as a lawmaker? So he opposed uh, this subpoena, a judge ruled against him, and now he is appealing. And so District Attorney Fonnie Willis said, no, you still have to appear in the subpoena. Uh, A judge agreed. And now Lindsey Graham is appealing and trying to put a stop with his appeal to this entire investigation by Willis until there is a ruling on his appeal. Um, As of taping, uh, District Attorney Willis has said, no, no, we can keep going. Ask the judge to say, no, we're going to keep this investigation going during this appeal. He has a right to appeal, but we're going to keep moving forward. He can't use this as a stall tactic. Uh, But I really doubt, and I think my sisters agree based on their uh, reaction to (laughs) the senator's argument that he's likely going to lose this. And just like Rudy, he will probably have to testify as well. I think we're both shaking our heads. Yes, we agree. (laughs) We definitely agree. But isn't this sort of actually like the argument that Donald Trump made about why the government should defend him in the E. Jean Carroll case because it was his job as president to defame E. Jean Carroll? 
Yeah, and the yeah. difference is he had he had Attorney General Barr who was agreeing with him, <laughs> and now we have people who actually are adhering by the actual rule of law and saying, no, no, you have, yes, there are certainly privileges connected to certain jobs in the executive and in the legislative branches, but they do not let you commit crimes or engage in law, unlawful behavior. That's where the line is drawn. It's so fascinating to me that this issue, like the Mar-a-Lago search issues, this isn't being litigated in the District of Columbia. It's being litigated in the very conservative pro-law enforcement 11th Circuit. As a longtime beneficiary um, of the 11th Circuit's law in this area as a prosecutor, it's really stunning to think that somebody could use such a blatantly wrong argument to try to avoid testimony. And I wonder if the 11th Circuit is going to slap this one aside with the same, um, it, it, it's, some of the judges are very witty and can be very acerbic at times. And I'm sort of looking forward to this opinion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's a really important point, Joyce, because a lot of times we see attacks on judges based on who they're appointed by or based on, you know, it's a Ninth Circuit or First Circuit or other places where it's like liberal bastions. This is not that. So if they lose here, that really undercuts those arguments. This has been a fascinating discussion. Let's just go to a broader question about what do we know about the Georgia investigation and what your predictions are and when it will reach a conclusion? Is it going to be the first one to finish up? What do you think? Joyce, you want to go first? So this is just really a crystal ball. I don't have any inside information on this. Fonnie Willis committed in advance that she wouldn't be taking any action around the election. I think even if all of her ducks lined up very neatly and came together, the earliest she could feasibly seek an indictment would be late this year, realistically, the beginning of next year. And, you know, look at what's happened in the last two weeks. Merrick Garland has literally leapfrogged over everybody else, leapfrogged the January 6th committee, leapfrogged Fonnie Willis. Um, So I don't really know how to estimate what's going on here. I will say, though, um, I am. I continue to be really surprised that we haven't seen DOJ show up in this investigation. I have so much regard for Fonnie Willis. She's pursued this in almost a David versus Goliath way. She's the district attorney in a county in Georgia. She has a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. Fulton County has a high violent crime rate. She was carrying a backlog of cases from before she became the DA because of COVID. She has a lot of work to do. And it takes gumption and courage to stack up your resources the way she has when when you've got to face re-election in a couple of years. So um, I have respect for that. I appreciate that she's doing what she's doing. I think it's really odd that we haven't seen DOJ enter, not to take her case away from her, but certainly to back her up and to even out the resource picture that a former president will have um, and, and the sort of focus that he will have, not being responsible for the entire uh, remainder of Fulton County and being able to focus only on his own personal situation. Um, but the question you asked, Jill, is what does the horse race look like? Who will... Uh, get to indictment first. I don't know that anybody is ultimately going to indict the former president, and I don't have any clue who it'll be first. So I'll just 
walk away from the question. Joyce was absolutely, Joyce absolutely had it on the nail. And and all I would add is just to say, to the point about the DOJ leapfrogging and, and everything that we've seen, I think that just underscores how unpredictable all of this is, because I don't think that any of us a couple of weeks ago would have predicted that. Um, so it's really hard to to tell, but at least it's um, interesting to know that at least there are muscular uh, investigations being carried out both in Fulton County and at the federal level, uh, if not as muscular as it could have been in New York. So we'll see what happens. Kim, it's so interesting that earlier in the podcast, you flagged the, quote, less muscular investigation in New York. We were all, I think, um, I'm going to say surprised, maybe even a little bit disappointed when newly elected Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg seemed to shut down the investigation into President Trump that was going on in Manhattan after indicting his CFO, Alan Weisselberg, and the Trump Organization. And there's a fascinating development in that criminal case. Um, So many people expected it to reach Trump himself. It has not yet, but now there's speculation that the case could have renewed vitality. So I'll start with you, Kim. Remind us what the investigation was looking into, who the defendants are, and what the charges that have been filed consist of. Yeah, so this was an investigation into shady tax dealings by Trump and the Trump organization. And uh, Weisselberg, who was the CFO, I believe, of the Trump organization at a time at the time and a long time uh, friend and accountant of Donald Trump, essentially saying that the the that they were cooking the books to say that their uh, properties and holdings were more valuable when they were trying to get loans uh and other valuable things, but then undervaluing them once the IRS and other tax authorities came around. That is extremely illegal. And that was the trigger for this Manhattan DA investigation by Alvin Bragg. Now, recall also that we've talked about in past podcasts about how there was a disagreement within that prosecutor's office between Bragg and other prosecutors, some of whom quit out of frustration at Bragg saying that he did not want to indict Trump himself, although Weisselberg and the Trump organization remained uh, subjects of this investigation. Weisselberg was actually set to go to trial on this and realized that he could get up to 15 years. And then lo and behold, we get this news of a plea deal um, that allowed him to get a much Uh, lighter sentence in this case in exchange for him uh, testifying against the Trump organization. The reporting that I saw said that he steadfastly refused, even still, to implicate Trump himself, even though that could have reduced his uh, potential sentence even further. It's quite remarkable, but clearly he did not want to go to jail for 15 years, uh, and he's trying to do the best that he can, but still keeping his allegiance to Trump. That's remarkable. It's really a tightrope that he's trying to walk. You have to wonder if he'll be successful. For one thing, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how this investigation morphed and that by the time he's charged, they're talking about using these sort of tax avoidance scams, right? Yeah. He's being paid by Trump org, uh, by paying grandkids school tuition, 
getting cars and being paid in an off-books way where he's not right. paying taxes on this. Not only is that state tax charges, but it seems to me that it would be awfully easy to bring federal charges there. So you got to wonder what's going on in Manhattan. Um, but Weisselberg isn't the only defendant in this case. Trump Organization gets indicted too. They'll go to trial in October. And as you say, Kim, it's just so fascinating that he's willing to testify against the organization, but not against Trump himself. Jill, what are the terms of the plea agreement? And do you think he can pull off the tightrope act? I don't think he can. I think it's just not realistic. But the plea agreement is a great deal for him. It seems to be that his sentence will be dramatically reduced to possibly 100 days. But the judge made a very big point out of saying that requires that you testify fully and truthfully in the trial, which is set for October 24th, just a few weeks away, really. Uh, October 24th is the trial against- And a few weeks ahead of the election, too. Exactly. Um, in, In that trial against the Trump organization. And it also, in the plea agreement, it doesn't say that you are, that this is in exchange for everything you might have done. It leaves out that part. So it sounds like they could have another thing in addition to what could have been a 15-year sentence for violating, I can't remember now if it's 14 or 15 counts of tax avoidance uh, of over 1.7 million. But there's still something else, which could be something against one of his children who got the benefit of uh, a condominium or housing or something else, so that it might be not even against him, because really, once you're at 15 years at his age, you don't need to add any more counts on. Uh, He's 75, and that's sort of it. But in any event, um, to, to your question, I think what is gonna happen now is you have a guaranteed conviction of the Trump organization. You have someone who has pled guilty saying, you know, we had this long-term scheme to avoid taxes, and it's not just his personal taxes, federal and state, but the Trump organization didn't pay payroll taxes. So they avoided taxes as well. So they got a benefit for which they should pay a price. And there's two things. One, of course, you say, well, who goes to jail from the corporation? Well, the CEO might well. And who was the CEO? It was Donald Trump while he was not president. So I think that there is a possible uh, consequence for Donald Trump. There certainly is a financial consequence for the Trump organization, which still has, uh, remember, there's uh, you know pending other things against the Trump organization and also tax-wise against Donald Trump. Let's not forget the audit where he got a $70 million refund of his taxes. And I've been doing some research on that, and it's pretty interesting, but it's beyond our discussion today. But someday maybe we'll have that discussion about what's going on with that audit and what the um, Congress is doing to hold up that Congress, uh, that investigation going further. So you flag a really interesting point, Jill, which is that when you indict a, a corporation— the corporation can't go to jail, right? I mean, the corporation's not a person. 
And sometimes what ends up happening, not always, but sometimes, is key figures in that corporation will subsequently get charged. Sally Yates, when she was um, the deputy attorney general, actually implemented a policy called the Yates Memo that required federal prosecutors to consider looking and holding individuals accountable. Um, There had been a long time, I think, practice of indicting the corporation, letting the corporation pay a fine, but not indicting principals who could be sent to prison. And Sally really put a lot of thought into coming up with a cohesive policy designed to try to hold these individuals accountable. You've got to wonder um, what might happen in this case and whether the district attorney has been taking all of this criticism on the cheek for a while, knowing that he had a strategy. Do you think that that's likely here, Jill? And do you think that Weisselberg will actually tell the truth during trial? Or do you think, I mean, you've pointed out that he's still trying to play for Team Trump. Do you think maybe he would perjure himself to protect the former guy? I think that if he doesn't want to go to jail, he's not going to perjure himself because the judge is, the same judge who is sentencing him is the judge on this trial. And if he doesn't feel that Weisselberg is fully forthcoming and fully honest and Remember, this is a corporation, but it's not really, it's not like Procter & Gamble. This is a small company where everybody knows everybody. There are only a few executives. It can only operate through those executives. So first of all, the Yates memo makes a lot of sense in terms of saying, in this case, the people at the top are the ones who should pay the price for the wrongdoing of the corporation. The corporation can only act through people. So it really does apply here. And I don't see how you can testify against the corporation without saying who knew what. And to say that Donald Trump, who benefited from this, didn't know about it seems so incredible and so impossible to believe that I think that it would void the plea agreement and that he will end up in jail just on this sentence. And the judge made it clear, just remember, you could face 15 years. He said it multiple times I, in accepting the plea. So I think, no, I think that Weisselberg is under serious pressure and that Donald Trump should be very worried. Well, we know what we'll be talking about come October 24th. And given that timing, Kim, I think it's worth considering how this plays into Trump's political calculus, looking ahead to the midterms and to his own, God forbid, run for the presidency again. Do you think that he'll consider this investigation as a factor? Is it part of this press of legal investigations moving closer to him? Or do you think it's not on his radar screen because he thinks he's Teflon coated? So I will start by prefacing this uh, and saying I am not an expert on what goes on inside Donald Trump's head by a long (laughs) shot. Uh, But just based on what I've observed, I would say no, this is not going to play into his calculus at all. In fact, I think one reason that it won't is ever since the lawfully executed search warrant at Mar-a-Lago Uh, That has had the effect of really rallying support around him in various forms, including from Mike Pence, who's hanging he didn't seem to be bothered by on January 6th of last year. Um, I think, if anything, Donald Trump believes that he can run on grievance. He can run when he sees himself as the victim of some witch hunt, and he has framed all of these investigations as that. 
So I don't, I think that he thinks that that helps him. There was before the Mar-a-Lago search, um, it seemed to me, and I was actually, you know, I, I found it very interesting, this growing, if still relatively small sentiment among Republicans who just thought that the ongoing January 6th investigation was just a liability. It was a drag. They thought, uh, they wish that this wasn't happening and maybe that it was time um, to sort of cut Trump loose because it was just too much. I think, unfortunately, the uh, search at Mar-a-Lago has reversed that uh, sentiment in some sense and given giving, given them uh, f- falsely this rallying cry against the FBI that has sort of unified them again and unified them behind Trump. So I don't think it for a minute that he is going to see Alan Weisselberg. He, also, he probably thinks Adel, Ad, Adam Weisselberg will take a bullet for him. Um, and so he doesn't think that this is going to harm his political aspirations at all. So I think if I were to guess, again, I don't know. Uh, But if I were to guess, I would say no. So now we have come to what is truly our favorite part of the show, which is answering questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week because whenever we can, we often answer questions, just respond right on Twitter. Um, And so keep an eye out from that. So we are going to start with a question from Flavia. And that question is, what do you think the over under is that Garland will take the evidently simple steps of rescinding the OLC memo prohibiting investigations close to elections? That's a very interesting question, Joyce. What do you think? It's a really interesting question. And I think what it gets to, this is actually a DOJ policy that prohibits prosecutors from taking overt investigative steps, including indicting someone, in a way that would influence the outcome of an election. I don't think that we'll see the attorney general rescind this policy because it's a good policy. DOJ should not be able to influence elections. We only have to think back to everything that happened with Jim Comey and Hillary Clinton to appreciate how great the risk that this sort of improper action can upset the balance is. But the question actually has a very nuanced angle to it because the question is, well, how far does this go? And in my experience, we applied it to candidates who were on the ballot. You wouldn't take overt steps if you had an investigation involving someone who was going to be on a ballot that would be cast 30 or 60 days out. But, you know, now we're facing this potential situation with the former president As we discussed in the show, Fonnie Willis has said she won't take any action in her investigation around the time of the investigation. But my read on DOJ's policy is that I would be free to act close to an election so long as I wasn't engaged with a person who was a candidate. We don't know for certain how Merrick Garland interprets that provision. So it will be interesting to see if we get some refinement either in a written rewrite of the policy or because maybe DOJ does something around the time of the election that suggests that Garland, too, adheres to that strict read of the policy. 
All right. And, and when you mention OLC uh, opinion, that is one, there is one that I think should be rescinded, and that is the one about indicting a sitting president. Indeed. Uh, and so I, I just want to throw that in. And I also want to say, in terms of loving these questions, I actually got a thank you note from a person on Twitter because we answered her question last Aww. week. So that was lovely. That is very lovely. Um, well, our next question is from Ginny, uh, who asks, what's the difference between a federal judge and a federal magistrate? A friend says a federal magistrate is not approved by the Senate and therefore had no right to sign the search warrant. Thanks. Jill, can you shed some light so, on that for us? Yes, I can. And a federal magistrate, one of the major jobs of a magistrate is to exactly review and sign off on search warrants. A magistrate is selected by the judges in that district, not by the president. He's not appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, but is selected by the judges and has a job which is to help them in the carrying out of their duties. And one big issue is the search warrant. So yes, he was absolutely the right one to sign it. Something that's very interesting is different federal districts, there are 93 nationwide, will use magistrate judges in different ways. So, for instance, in, in some districts, they will actually um, be much more involved in criminal cases than they are in my district, where they have relatively little involvement after arraignment. But I think Jill is absolutely right. In districts across the country, it's routine to take a request for a search warrant to a magistrate judge. It removes a lot of pressure from the district judges. But of course, the action that the magistrate judge takes can ultimately be reviewed when issues come up at trial about what evidence is admissible. Well, thank you for that question, Jenny, for uh, letting others know what you were wondering, as well as um, revealing yet another word that I say different from Joyce, which is magistrate. You say magistrate. Magistrate. <laughs> it's like insurance. All right. So <laughs> our final question is from Deborah. Could you speak to the role that presidential libraries play in housing a former president's records? Uh, Jill, what do, you, do you have uh, an answer to that? I do, and I thank uh, Deborah for that question because it has come up very recently by the former president saying, well, I didn't do anything wrong taking documents from the White House. President Obama took 33 million of them. Yes, he did. It was part of the archives putting him aside for his library. The documents that were taken by President Trump into Mar-a-Lago were not part of any plan. In fact, I don't believe there is a plan for a Trump library. I haven't heard one. Yeah, uh, haven't heard about it. Maybe there is, but that's not what this was. And those are maintained at the federal library, at, I'm sorry, at the presidential libraries. The archives actually maintain those documents. They still maintain control of them. So that's the big difference is who controls them, the archives or the person who stole them from the White House. And President Obama did not steal them. He worked with the archives to actually designate certain documents that would be part of his presidential legacy through his library, which will be here in Chicago, and they have broken ground. And it's not like Trump even said, oh, these are for the library. I know. <laughs> 
Oh, wait, we've just given him another excuse. How many are there now? Oh, it's from my library. Oh, yeah. He doesn't listen to us. Not how it works. None of this is how it works. He can come up with all the excuses he wants to. Well, thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Barb will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, which is a favorite, uh, our hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, Honey, HelloFresh, and Olive in June. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. And to keep up with us every week, make sure you follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find our show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. I got to tell you, I, it, w- when I said for clumped, it's not a word I normally use. But I love la- that word. But last night, um, I went with three really good friends to see The Devil Wears Prada, which is pre-Broadway. It, oh, Elton John was it awesome. Was it great? Ah! We, we loved it. It was really, really fun. But we went to dinner before uh, at a restaurant called Petarino's, which is very near the theater. And we got there and there were no outdoor tables, although we had reserved an outdoor table. And I said to the manager, um, I'm here, the reservations under the name of my friend. Um, and we were promised an outdoor table. Is there anything you could do? And he said, well, just a minute, let me look. And then he came back and he was almost in tears. And he said, thank you, Mrs. Winebanks for saving our country. Oh. I've got a table for you now. He oh. said, he, he went, he was so sweet. His name is Mark. And I'm actually going to post a picture on um, Twitter of him and me oh. because he, oh. it was, but he said, I'm so verklempt because of meeting you. And it was, it was so, he, he's an African-American. I didn't expect the word for klempt, which I associate with Yiddish, <laughs> to come out of his mouth. So I was like, oh my God. So we were hugging and kissing and it was wonderful. Oh, so that's, that's why, that's why I guess for klempt was in great, my mind. Yes. It, it was, he was so wonderful. Oh my God. And the food was fantastic. Oh my God. I had, if you're ever in Chicago, I had the risotto with shrimp that had basil in it. Oh God. It was so good. Oh, it was, that's a great that story, good. Jill. I so, will yeah. have you know that I say oi on the regular. So, Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs>